0: From Ridiculous Joy and TMSG in Roseville, this is the True Joy Podcast, a story of joy told each episode. I'm Jill Mansfield. Officially, this is episode one, but this is the second recorded episode. If you haven't listened to the trailer, stop, go back and listen. We're telling the story of joy, but we're also digging in and investigating why it even matters why the message of joy is so persistent. It's a joy investigation. Like those in the true crime shows people love, except this is true joy. Get it? That's where the name comes from. To pick up where we left off, we started with a playlist of songs that brought me joy, which led to an Instagram account, which led to a newsletter, and now we're here. When we get right down to it, what began as a fun playlist has turned into a joy movement of sorts. A near constant pursuit of finding joy, wherever we possibly can. But where did this come from? The playlist started because I needed a pick-me-up, but as you can see, this has gone way beyond all that. Now I'm far more invested than I ever thought I would be. Ignoring this mission of joy only makes it worse. It's kind of like hiding from your kids in the bathroom when they were little. You're fooling no one, and it only makes things worse because now they're yelling at you through the locked door, asking what you're doing. These ideas of joy are just as persistent, if not more. So here we are, investigating joy, searching for why it matters, or if it does. But I'm learning that the question isn't about how we find joy. Not yet. And no one is more surprised at this pivot in the investigation than me. I thought this case was a slam dunk. Textbook, open and shut. It's not, and it couldn't be further from easy. As a person who isn't personally invested in true crime, it feels mildly insane that I dove headfirst into the deep end of something I actively avoid. I suppose the good news is that I can learn about the people... My family and friends who watch murder shows and listen to true crime podcasts without actually partaking in it myself. That's probably not a sign of a good investigator, but then again, I never claim to be one. Trying to understand the siren call of murder and missing persons feels completely off brand for someone like me. My television choices sit in a dainty bubble of positivity and light. I would much rather stick to watching Parks and Rec or Ted Lasso a million times over before tackling the latest Netflix binge, Showing Me the Mind of a Serial Killer. To quote the namesake of the latter of those two shows when he was presented with hot brown garbage water, no thank you. Many, many years ago, I was part of a group of writers, tackling one specific topic each week we would each write about this weekly topic from our individual perspectives and post it on the blog we all shared. It was a really unique group of people, and it was within that same weekly format that we also hosted a type of book club, reading one book each month and sharing our opinions about it. We each took turns choosing the book we would read, and choosing books ranged from the epic Lance Armstrong memoir, It's Not About the Bike, to classics such as Catcher in the Rye." A few months into book club, I found myself in a bit of a situation with the group selection of Norman Mailer's The Executioner's Song. At over a thousand pages, I was initially more concerned with actually finishing the book in a month than anything else. But then I actually picked up a copy of the book, I think from the library, and I had all new concerns swirling in my brain. Now, I do know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but I felt myself growing more and more concerned after the cover of this said book let me know that within all those many pages that I was already worried about reading was a true story about a murderer who wanted to be executed for his crimes. The me of today has a much better handle on what I can and can't watch and the books I should avoid. But back then, I only knew that I wanted to do my part and be a team player. I started the book with the foolish determination that I would finish it. And ladies and gentlemen, I think you should know that I did not finish this book. A couple of days in, and I knew I had made a foolish mistake, but I kept going. I soon felt myself slipping into a dark place. I wasn't myself, and I couldn't seem to find my way back. I was grumpy, I was irritable, and I kept reading, trying to power through. But by the fourth day, I knew with all certainty that I no longer wanted access to the mind of a murderer. I was so mad at Norman Mailer for even writing all those words on those thousands of pages. I couldn't decide if I wanted to throw the book across the room or set fire to it, but I instinctively knew one of those things was bound to happen if I kept reading. I figured that setting fire to a library book was probably illegal, so I instead confessed all the ways I was struggling to my friend Sarah who was also part of this group and reading this troublesome book, a far cry from all the Christopher Pike books we read as teenage book nerds. All that YA murder and mystery was as fake as, well, as fake as cheese that comes in a can. I mean, it was fake, but enough mystery to be fun. The Executioner song was not. Luckily, Sarah gave me permission to quit. To stop reading a book that was actually affecting me mentally and physically and emotionally. If I remember correctly, I still wrote about the book when it was my turn, but as you can guess, it was way more about why I quit reading than anything else. And thus began my moratorium on murdery media. I mean, sure, there were some shows here and some books there that had a murderous death or two. But the death of Harry Potter's parents and glimpses into Voldemort's murderous magic didn't have the same effect on me as the true stories of psychotic killers that I now avoided. I don't know why I'm okay with pretend murder or murder light in books. But if nothing else, this experience helped me set up the boundaries I needed for all forms of media, books or otherwise, to safeguard my mental health and my emotional well-being. And I stuck to it. Until season one of serial. You know, the one murder podcast I've listened to. I don't know how to describe my feelings about the story of Adnan and the mysterious death of Hey Min Lee. I was hooked from the first episode even though it was so unlike the me that had created all those murder media boundaries. I was suddenly far too interested in what a group of high school seniors were doing on a January afternoon in 1999. As you can imagine, if you haven't already listened to it, there were really difficult things to hear throughout the 12-episode season, but somehow I pushed through. It's only now as I look back, and even re-listen to a few episodes as I prepared for this, that I can see why it might have been different for me that time around, and how I could finish the entire season. For one thing, I wasn't forced into the inner workings of the mind of the killer. Even if Adnan had killed Hay. First of all, it hadn't been proven, and second of all, I guess Adnan maintaining his innocence meant that I didn't have to enter into the mind of a psycho murderer. It was a safer version of murder, even if it wasn't pleasant. But one of the things that has stuck with me over the years after listening and something I think about with this true crime-obsessed culture we live in, do I remember that these are real people with real lives? who experienced this very real, very difficult, horrible thing? Or is it just a story to me? There have been many follow-up podcasts and documentaries on this particular case, but at the time, all I knew is what Sarah Koenig told me. I'd love to dig into that more, but I think there's an important piece of the story that we need to keep in mind. I'm not saying that Sarah Koenig left things out on purpose, although who knows, maybe she did. What I'm saying is that it's important to keep in mind that the storyteller has control of the story that is told. Even me. And maybe it's right at this moment, more than I originally thought, that the magnitude of all this is hitting me. The responsibility that comes with telling this story of joy. So here's today's briefing. When I was assigned this case, it was classified as a simple disturbance of our peace with a possibility of what we'll call a missing person. The deeper I got into this, with every clue that's been uncovered, I realized all the ways we've gotten this wrong. How I've gotten this wrong. What I thought was a simple investigation has turned into something completely different This pursuit of joy has consumed me for so long, my joy-colored glasses prevented me from seeing the crime scene evidence right in front of my face. I now know we have to continue this investigation from an entirely different angle. I mean, what did we do as a culture, friends and family, or community that flipped the switch so dramatically that even talking about joy can make us feel foolish? I think we need to ask ourselves how we got here this space that is so devoid of joy? How and why we got so far from joy that we actually lost sight of it? How we stood by, completely unaware of the slow and callous death of joy and hope? Because I guess if I'm going to try to get to the bottom of joy, I'm going to need to start from a place that isn't. See you in two weeks. The True Joy podcast is produced by Sarah Whitehead, Dina Flores, and me. Tracy Eldridge is our Joy Promotions Manager. The Man I'm Married To is our Production and Operations Manager. Paisley the Dog is our Editorial Advisor. Editing, done by me. Fact-checking, loosely done by me. A special thanks to my daughters, Paige and Abby, my family and friends, and the Ridiculous Joy community, who are also my family and friends. True Joy Podcast is a production of Ridiculous Joy and TMSG Roseville. And I'm out.